0: Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Wednesday, July 30th, 2020, I'm Jackson Bird. The world's largest nuclear fusion project has begun assembly in France, getting us one step closer to a possible future of unlimited clean energy. Lockdown caused the world to be the quietest it has ever been on record. What does the benefit package look like for former U.S. presidents, asking for a friend, and how to view the YouTube homepage through the eyes of a flat earther, a prepper, and more? Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Yesterday, the assembly phase began for the world's largest nuclear fusion project, ITER, or International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, is a collaboration between China, the European Union, India, Japan, South Korea, Russia, and the United States, and it is located in southern France. Assembly is expected to take about four and a half years, and when complete, the aim of ITER will be to show that fusion power can be generated safely, sustainably, and scaled for commercial use. If successful, we'll be looking at an unlimited source of clean, renewable energy. Quoting the BBC, Nuclear fusion is an attempt to replicate the processes of the sun on Earth. It differs significantly from nuclear fission, which has been our only way of getting electricity from atoms since the 1950s. Fission has proven to be hugely expensive. It generates large amounts of radioactive waste and raises serious concerns about safety and the proliferation of weapons. Fusion is the process that drives our sun. Every single second, millions of tons of hydrogen atoms crash together in the tremendous temperatures and pressures of our parent star. This forces them to break their atomic bonds and fuse to make the heavier element helium. Natural solar fusion generates enormous quantities of heat and light. For decades, researchers have been trying to replicate this process on Earth, or build the sun in a box, as one physicist dubbed it. The basic idea is to take a hydrogen gas, heat it to more than 100 million degrees until it forms a thin, fragile cloud called a plasma, and then control it with powerful magnets until the atoms fuse and release energy. Potentially, it can generate power that is low carbon with smaller amounts of waste. It also comes without the danger of explosions." And quoting further from CBS News, the idea of fusion dates back to the 1920s, and scientists have chased after the concept ever since. In the 1960s, the Soviets took a major step forward when they developed the tokamak, a donut-shaped chamber that uses a powerful magnetic field to confine a hot plasma to generate fusion. To this day, a tokamak is the leading candidate for industrial-scale fusion and lies at the heart of ITER. Eater's tokamak will be a behemoth. Once assembled, the round chamber made up of more than one million components will be a hundred feet across and contain the world's largest system of superconducting magnets. Constructing the machine piece by piece will be like assembling a three-dimensional puzzle on an intricate timeline, Dr. Bernard Bego, director general of Eater, said in a press statement. Every aspect of project management, systems engineering, risk management, and logistics of the machine assembly must perform together with the precision of a Swiss watch, end quote. And because of how complex it is, Eater has already been beset by delays and budget overages for years— An article last fall from the BBC laid serious doubts about ITER running on anything close to its proposed timeline, casting doubt that ITER would have a demonstration fusion power plant working even by 2050. So this isn't anything that's going to solve the climate crisis in the near future. But here's a bit more on how the process at ITER will work, quoting CBS News again. The process to generate fusion energy is both enormously sophisticated and elegantly simple. To begin, a few grams of deuterium and tritium, forms of hydrogen, gas are injected into the huge, donut-shaped chamber of the tokamak. The hydrogen is then heated until it becomes a cloud-like ionized plasma. That plasma is shaped and controlled by 10,000 tons of superconducting magnets. And when the plasma reaches 150 million degrees Celsius, fusion occurs— in the fusion reaction, a tiny amount of mass is converted to a huge amount of energy as ultra-high-energy neutrons escape the magnetic cage and transmit energy as heat. The heat is then absorbed by water circulating in the walls of the tokamak, making steam. In a commercial plant, a steam turbine will then generate electricity. After four and a half years of assembly, in December of 2025, ITER scientists and engineers hope to launch FIRST Plasma, the initial event demonstrating the machine's functionality. If all goes according to plan, the plant at Eder will produce about 500 megawatts of thermal power. The team says that if operated continuously, Eder would be able to generate about 200 megawatts of electric power, enough for about 200,000 homes, end quote. And if it all works out, several decades from now, we would have commercial fusion plants around the world that the Eater team says would be designed with slightly larger plasma chambers so that they could supply electricity for two million homes. The cost of such operation would be comparable to a traditional nuclear power plant, but without the cost and issues of waste disposal. I find myself having to remain skeptical about this so that I don't get my hopes up, unlimited clean energy is the stuff of dreams and sci-fi. In fact, it's the plot of my favorite book that I read last year, All Our Wrong Todays by Lan Must Die. In it, clean energy is supplied by some harnessing of the rotation of the earth and the movement of the planets, not nuclear fusion, but it has nonetheless resulted in an alternate present where most of the world's problems are solved. And because the discovery of the source of energy happened during the Cold War, a lot of the technology that developed is akin to what people dreamt up in the 1950s. Flying cars, meals in pill form, all that Jetson stuff. Time travel also exists, which is where the story really gets interesting. The main character is the disappointing son of the genius pioneer of time travel. He goes back to the discovery of clean energy, messes it all up, and gets trapped in our real-life 2016 dumpster fire. And the author, Elan Mestai, also happens to be a writer and producer on the TV show This Is Us, which, when I found that out, made so much sense because the novel is an absolutely gut-wrenching page-turner with all kinds of twists and turns, just like an episode of This Is Us. So if you're into time travel or speculative fiction or just want to play around in a world where clean, renewable energy is run-of-the-mill, I highly recommend All Our Wrong Todays by Elan Mestai. I've talked before about how much quieter the world has gotten during lockdown, but now scientists are saying that the earth might actually be the quietest that it has ever been on record. Quoting Wired, An international team of researchers and seismologists analyzed data sets from more than 300 seismic stations around the world, measuring the vibrations caused by human activity, and found that global lockdowns reduced seismic noise, that is, the noise caused by things like movement, transport, and construction, by up to 50%. Scientists think it could be the quietest planet Earth has been since humans developed the technology to listen, the most prominent recorded reduction in so-called anthropogenic noise. They've dubbed it the Anthropause. End quote. I've been thinking that this quietness is just because there are less planes and in some places still less traffic or less construction, but apparently a good part of it is also because we humans just aren't moving around as much even as individual humans. Professor Martha Savage from New Zealand's Victoria University of Wellington, who was involved in the study, said, quote, The difference was most noticeable in urban areas, but this reduction in noise was observable even at the most remote locations the research team was able to observe, in sub-Saharan Africa. End quote. And quoting from Wired, the seismographs that identified this drastic reduction in seismic waves are more typically used for the purposes of detecting earthquakes and volcanic activity, but they're also sensitive enough to pick up the noise caused by people going about their everyday activities. And as COVID-19 and its ensuing lockdowns made these activities unfeasible, the seismic noise produced by humanity on a second-to-second basis gradually quieted down. Researchers were able to visualize this drop in noise as a wave that moved around the globe, from China to Italy and then on to other countries as different parts of the world went into lockdown. That wave was tracked using a combination of seismic noise measurements with anonymized data from Google and Apple maps showing human movement." And scientists think they may be able to use a similar methodology to track human mobility without violating people's privacy. Now, I'm not going to lie. Either I just got used to the quiet or I have extraordinarily loud neighbors, which is true because this eerie quiet people have been talking about isn't something I've noticed since like the first week of lockdown. But I suppose the science doesn't lie. And either way, it is pretty cool to think about. There are a lot of lesser known things that happen to a person when they become president and even when they leave office, like the fact that neither current nor former presidents can drive cars on open roads. It's not a law, but it is highly enforced by the Secret Service and was put in place after President John F. Kennedy's assassination, which ushered in a slew of tightened security measures. But on the flip side of that, presidents do get a bunch of other benefits when they leave office thanks to something called the Former Presidents Act, which was passed in 1958 by President Eisenhower. Chief among those benefits is a lifelong annual pension of just over $200,000, which is currently being paid by the Secretary of the Treasury to Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. And this benefit extends, in a much smaller capacity, to their spouses as well. If the president dies before them, the spouse receives $20,000 annually, unless they remarry. The spouse also receives the same lifelong Secret Service protection that the president and any of his children under 16 do. The only president to refuse this protection so far was Richard Nixon, who opted to pay for his own bodyguards. At the time, the Secret Service protection for him and his family would have cost taxpayers about $3 million a year. And by the way, Nixon was still eligible for all of the former presidents act benefits because he resigned rather than being forced out of the office. So, nice loophole there. In addition to the pension and security detail, former presidents also receive money for office space, including staff, furniture, and supplies, as well as expenses for moving out of the White House and any work-related travel. Now, all this might seem pretty excessive when you consider the bonkers amount of money most modern presidents make off of book deals and speaking engagements, but apparently it was all started in part to help out President Truman, who was struggling to support himself after leaving office, partially because his sense of integrity wouldn't let him accept any offers that, quote, commercialized on the prestige and dignity of the office of the presidency, end quote. And something like this certainly would have helped out Ulysses S. Grant, who lost almost all of his money by joining in a bad business deal with his son. And as all of that was going south, he was also diagnosed with terminal throat cancer. Determined not to leave his wife and family penniless, he set about writing his memoir, which he completed just a few days before he passed away. The memoir became a commercial success, providing his wife with the modern equivalent of over $12 million in royalties which was thanks in part to a very generous publishing deal from Grant's friend Mark Twain, who offered him a very unusual 75% cut of those royalties. And if you are curious about more presidential history, I personally recommend the Presidential Podcast from The Washington Post, which spends one episode each diving into all of our 45 presidents. It is super well-researched, has great sound design, balances common knowledge with little-known context and tidbits, and it debuted a few years ago, so you can listen to the whole thing in one go without waiting for new episodes to come out. Link to that in the show notes. At least since Eli Pariser coined the term filter bubble in 2011, we have all been increasingly aware of the role algorithms play in our individual experiences online. A site called TheirTube wants to show people what the YouTube experience, at least, looks like for different types of people. You can go to their.tube, which is T-H-E-I-R, and click on either fruitarian, prepper, liberal, conservative conspiracist or climate denier. And then you'll be served up an example of what the homepage of YouTube looks like for someone from that ideology with real clickable videos based on a sort of dummy account. According to the Theretube site, quote, each of these Theretube personas is informed by interviews with real YouTube users who experienced similar recommendation bubbles. Six YouTube accounts were created in order to simulate the interviewees experiences. These accounts subscribe to the channels that the interviewees followed and watches videos from these channels to reproduce a similar viewing history and a recommendation bubble. Every day, Theretube retrieves the recommendations that shows up on their YouTube homepage. You can go back and forth in the dates to see different results by clicking on the arrow button and also see the viewing history of each persona by clicking the watch history button." End quote. Clicking on the different portals was honestly a bit eerie. Even being as familiar as I am with YouTube's algorithm and the silos that it can create for people, actually seeing some of the videos that exist out there took me aback for a minute. And this could be something unique to someone like me who has been involved in the YouTube scene in so many different ways for as long as I have, but when I clicked on one of the portals, I found an hour-long video talking about an incident at a conference that I was actually present for three years ago, being told from the perspective of one of the people who had harassed some of my acquaintances. So, yeah, this stuff is pretty wild. But I do think that this site is really important because it has never been more vital and more challenging to understand where someone you disagree with is coming from. So many of us are working from completely different sets of information, and within those various sets, we've created near-impenetrable echo chambers so that we're only encouraging each other and never seeing or in no way believing facts or opinions that would contradict our own beliefs. Quoting again from their tube, On an average day, people around the world watch one billion hours of video on YouTube. 70% of these videos are recommended by an AI, making each and every YouTube experience unique. These recommendations are good at maximizing user engagement and ad revenue by predicting what a user may watch and suggesting it. While recommendations can be useful, they can also reinforce the same points of view over and over again, trapping you inside a recommendation bubble. So if you're skeptical about climate change, YouTube can recommend even more content denying climate change, confirming the bias that you already have. Humans are biased by default, and any source of information that we make will always be biased, because it's made by humans. With traditional media, you can more easily discern the bias of the content and the source. It's easy to compare Fox News against the New York Times. On YouTube, however, there can be a billion different ways of how this information is shown. And the problem with this it's difficult to understand what kind of information bubble you're in because there's no easy way for you to compare your YouTube experience to that of others. End quote. Until their Tube. So if you want to see that other experience, you can do that again on their.tube. And if you want to dive deeper into this phenomenon and try to understand it a little bit more about just how someone, anyone, can get ensnared in it, I highly recommend the podcast Rabbit Hole and the documentary Behind the Curve. So Rabbit Hole is a New York Times-produced limited series podcast investigating the origins and impacts of everything from the alt-right and QAnon to PewDiePie and more. And Behind the Curve is a documentary currently on Netflix that follows several prominent Flat Earthers. Yes, really. And it is incredibly worth your time if you have any interest in understanding the double-edged sword of online communities. Links to both of those and their tube are, as always, in the show notes. That is all for today. As always, this show is produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird. I hope you all have a good rest of your day, and I will talk to you tomorrow.